An eight-year-old once wrote this about his grandmother. A grandma is a lady who has no children of her own, so she likes other people's boys and girls. Grandmas don't have anything to do except be there. If they take us for walks, they slow down past pretty leaves and caterpillars. They never say, hurry up. Usually they are fat, but not too fat to tie shoes. They wear glasses, and sometimes they take their teeth out. They can answer questions like why dogs hate cats and why God isn't married. They don't talk like visitors do, which is hard to understand. When they read to us, they don't skip words or mind if it is the same story again. Everybody should try to have a grandma, especially if you don't have a TV, because grandmas are the only grown-ups who always have time. Isn't that great? I don't know about you, but that is the picture that comes to my mind when I think of a grandma. A lovable lady who enjoys life and who imparts wisdom and who loves to spend time with her grandkids. But this is not the picture of a grandma we have in 2 Kings chapter 11. Imagine a grandma mass murderer. Imagine a mean, cutthroat, violence-prone, power-mongering grandma. It, it's just hard to conceptualize, trust me. A grandma with no loyalty even to her own family. Her name is Athaliah. And she learned from the best. You remember her mother's name was Jezebel. And her father was King Ahab. She had wicked parents indeed. Well, Athaliah is living in the southern kingdom of Judah. She is the queen mother. And her son, King Ahaziah, is killed by General Jehu as part of God's judgment on the house of Ahab. How does Athaliah respond to the death of her own son? Well, verse 1 causes you to shudder. It hit me kind of the way the news from Virginia Tech hit me the last, you know, two weeks ago when we heard about the, the mass shooting. It caused chill bumps. Listen to these words. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs, which included her own sons and grandsons. When Athaliah realizes that her son, Ahaziah, is dead, she makes herself queen over Judah. And to solidify her reign and hold over the government, she kills all the heirs of Ahaziah. She becomes the first and last and only woman to ever sit on the throne of Israel. She was a usurper of power. Athaliah was a rebel. She was a ruler that God did not appoint. One commentator says this of Athaliah, No character in history, sacred or secular, stands out more hideous than her. She was Hitler in a skirt. But in the midst of the genocide, Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. One of the boys escapes. Ahaziah's sister, Jehosheba, scoops up the baby boy Joash 
and hides him from grandma. The Jewish historian Josephus says that they hid the baby and his nurse in a palace room that was used to store spare mattresses and furniture. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. They tucked little baby Joash away in the temple. And for the next six years, while Athaliah rules over Judah, Jehoiada the priest rears and trains Joash to be king secretly, privately in the temple. The temple of Jehovah was a good hideout because it was the one place that the evil Athaliah was sure not to visit. And we all owe a debt of gratitude to this quick thinking, this daring young woman named Jehoshaphat. Understand, spiritually speaking, this was an incredibly close call. God had promised that a son of David would always sit on the throne of Israel. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise was Jesus Christ. The Messiah was to be born of the lineage of David. And here Athaliah tries to cut off all of her Davidic competition. She comes within a whisker of killing the whole royal line of David. If all the heirs of Ahaziah and David had been exterminated, Messiah could have never been born. Understand, Satan came within seconds of cutting off the Messianic line and ending our possibility of salvation. That's why when we get to heaven, we need to look up this young lady, Jehoshaphat, and we need to say thanks. For literally, we owe this young girl our salvation. Verse 4 tells us, In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and the escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. The time has come to unveil the king. And under heavy guard, the old priest, he brings the soldiers in and he reveals the true heir to David's throne. Can you imagine the relief that came over the people? Can you imagine the surge of hope when they saw that God's promises haven't failed? There is an heir who's related to David. There is a hope for a Messiah. Can you imagine? And there's a spiritual analogy here. Today, the true king of the earth is again hidden in a temple. Jesus today is in the heavenly temple while Satan, the usurper, throws his weight around here on the earth. But it's interesting. At the end of a seven-year period, just like we have here, the true king will be revealed. The Bible calls the last seven years of the present age the Great Tribulation. And at its close, Jesus will appear as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will depose the usurper, the Antichrist, and he will retake the throne that rightfully belongs to him. What a wonderful picture we have right here in our text. And on that day, imagine once again the surge of hope and the wonderful relief that will fall over the whole earth. Well, in verse 5, the priest organizes his troops. Then he commanded them, saying, This is what you shall do. One third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's palace. And notice there he doesn't acknowledge that it's the queen's palace. 
He doesn't even acknowledge a queen. This palace is the king's house. It belongs to Joash, not Athaliah. Well, one-third shall be at the gate of Sir, and one-third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep the watch of the house, lest it be broken down. The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. But you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand. And whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. In other words, they're to take no chances. This is the, the last remaining heir of the line of David. This is a red level security alert. Anybody that breaches the, you know, the cushion around the king, he needs to be executed. Well, the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada chose the Sabbath to crown the king for it was the only time that the two battalions of guards would be on hand at the same time. One getting off duty, one coming on duty. This was the way, a way for Jehoiada to mount extra security without attracting a lot of attention. Well, the priests gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. And then the escort stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar in the house. And he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, and notice this, gave him the testimony. The king's right to rule was based on the testimony, on the law of God. Thus the king of Israel was to have two things, a crown and a copy his own copy of the scriptures. Deuteronomy 17 verse 18 commands that the king pin his own copy of the law whenever he took the throne. Don't you wish today's politicians understood the importance of a copy? The copy of the scriptures? Don't you wish they understood that their right to rule over human affairs is a sacred trust given to them by God? And that his law supersedes our judgments. Don't you wish politicians today understood that? Well, the king receives a crown and he receives a copy. So here's this boy king. Imagine this. He's seven years old. He's wearing a crown. He's holding a Bible in his hands. We're told they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and they said, Long live the king. Judah erupts in a thunderous celebration. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom. And the leaders and trumpeters were by the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, Treason! Treason! Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. In other words, don't turn the temple into a place of execution. Take her outside. And so they seized her, and she went by way of the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. Verse 17. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people 
that they should be the Lord's people. Have you made a covenant tonight with the Lord that you might be the Lord's man, the Lord's woman? And also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. And they thoroughly, and you know, if you become you know, one of the people of the Lord, the first thing you'll do is to tear down the idols, tear down the false altars in your life. And they thoroughly broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Remember, Athaliah was the Jezebel of Judah. And just as Jezebel brought Baal worship into the northern kingdom of Israel, her daughter, Athaliah, had brought the same abominable practices to the southern kingdom. And so Jehoiada, he cleans house here in Jerusalem. He wipes out all traces of Baal and his worship. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And then he took the captains of hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the house of the Lord, and went by way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the kings. And so all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. The Davidic heir now. The rightful king of Judah is back on the throne. Verse 21 tells us, Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. And legend has it, his first royal decree was, Hear ye, hear ye. PS2's for everyone. <laughs> Just kidding. Chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Now earlier we called this boy Joash. Here he's called Jehoash. Evidently Joash is the shortened version of Jehoash. And my wife always corrects me whenever I shorten it. I have this habit, you know, if you're Michael and I talk to you for more than about 30 seconds, I'll end up calling you Mike. I just did Deborah's end up Deb and... Jeffrey's end up Jeff, and I, I just have that, that, she always tells me it's rude to shorten someone's name without permission, but I don't know, the Bible does it. So. And, and here, you know, it's Joash in some places, and then it's just Joash in some places. So. Joash reigned 40 years in Judah, and for the most part, he was a good king. What's so fascinating, though, is that when he was seven, he took the throne. Imagine a second grader as the president of the United States. Might do a better job, is that what you're saying? His first decision would be to halt all federal funding to school lunchrooms who didn't serve ice cream as the main course, you know. Air Force One would be flying to Disney World all the time, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Jehoash was king. And Jehoiada the priest was by his side. And this was important because in the early days of his reign, it was really Jehoiada the priest who was calling the shots. Verse 2, Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. And this turns out to really be a sad summary of Jehoash's life. He followed God only as long as he followed Jehoiada. 2 Chronicles chapter 24 tells us that when Jehoiada died, Joash actually turned to idolatry. 
Tragically, as soon as the old priest passes away, Joash walks away from the laws of God. And you know, this is true of many believers today. Think this through. They walk in the Spirit as long as they're in, a, in the shadow of a man or in the shadow of a woman. A godly influence is good. But at some point, a godly influence needs to become a personal resolve and a personal commitment. You know, too many Christians, they're chameleons. They, they change to the color of their surroundings. Call it the Joash rash. I hope you're cultivating the strength to go it alone. Yes, you can ride the coattails of a friend's faith for a time, but you can only do it for so long. There comes a time when you need to learn to stand on your own. Well, verse 3 tells us, But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. You see, Jehoash failed to obey God and centralized the worship in Judah. You know, God wanted all of Israel to worship at the temple. This was God's way of maintaining orthodoxy. If people were allowed to develop their own high place or altar and worship individually, you know that corruptions would creep in. Idolatry would find a foothold. Convenience, not scripture, would become the standard. And in the end, it was the failure to destroy these high places that really did in Judah, destined her for judgment. I think we too can be guilty of building one of these low-down high places. A high place today might be compared to an area in our lives where we try to strike a compromise between what's convenient and the true demands of discipleship. Maybe it's our music. We insist on listening to some secular stuff that maybe not be good for us when God is really calling us to lay it down. Maybe it's our finances. God wants us to give, but we keep holding back. Maybe it's our relationships. God wants us to adopt a Christian perspective to our dating, but we keep doing things our way. God wants to destroy these high places. If you tolerate them, eventually they'll lead to your downfall. Just ask Judah. Well, when Joash took the throne, it had been 135 years since Solomon had built the temple. Time for a facelift, wouldn't you think? Leave your house alone for 135 years and need a few repairs. So in verse 4, he sets out to make these needed repairs. And understand, repairing an existing structure is always more expensive than initial construction. Did you know we just paid $40,000 to renovate these two restrooms? $40,000 renovate four restrooms. Unbelievable. Reconstruction is spendy, and it happened here too. Well, Joash knows the temple is going to need a facelift. Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. He's doing some internal budgetary things. He's allocating certain funds that were going in one direction, and now he's channeling them toward the renovation of the temple. Now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. 
We don't know when the repair started, but now we're in year 23 and the work's still not done. I mean, these things take time, and it just seems like here it's taking too long. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now, therefore, do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple." Evidently, they were hoarding funds until they had enough to finish. And Joash, he said, look, we just need to pay as we build. We need to make some progress here. Your your problem right now is not the need for more money. You need to just get on with it and get the work done. I'd like to write that letter to my congressman. And the priest agreed that they would neither receive any more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. In other words, they they were not going to use any future funds for the repairs until the money that they had accumulated was already depleted. Well, Jehoash, he also, he changes collection procedures. For rather than using the temple taxes, they now employ a voluntary system of giving, verse 9. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bore a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord, And the priest who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. It was an offering box. Just like we've got here at Calvary Chapel. Joash adopts the Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain method of collections. Just drop it in the offering box. And so it was, whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags and counted the money that was found In the house of the Lord. And notice there was always two men who counted the money together. No one ever counted the money alone. In other words, there was some accountability to the system. That's why we have two people who count the money every Sunday. It's not a solo job. It's two people. There's accountability. There's some structure to it. Just wise. Then they gave the money which had been appointed into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to masons and stone cutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. Notice the labor wasn't donated. They paid for it. You know, often when you use free labor, you get what you pay for. This was a professional job. They brought in a crew. They paid them well. They got the work done. However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen, For they dealt faithfully. Now, as we saw earlier, they did employ a system of accountability. But you've got to understand, no system is foolproof. There's no such thing. Given enough time and given enough opportunity, unscrupulous people will beat any system. That's why the best safeguard is not a system but men of integrity and men of honesty, men who will deal faithfully. This was the type of men they found here. Verse 16. Well, the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord 
It belonged to the priests. Now, Haziel, king of Syria, he went up and he fought against Gath. You remember the old Philistine city just west of Jerusalem. And he took it in his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent them to Haziel, king of Syria, Then he went away from Jerusalem. This was a tragedy of unbelief. Jehoash has put so much work, so much effort, time and money and years into temple repairs only to deplete the temple of its treasures. When the king of Syria threatens to attack, rather than trust the Lord, Jehoash uses the temple treasures to pay a ransom. He refurbishes the temple only to undermine the project Because he doesn't fortify his faith. Guys, we are the New Testament temple. You and I, we are temples for the Holy Spirit. You and I together are a temple unto the Holy Spirit. Heard this quote one time. My body is a temple with ample parking in the rear. Just kind of a funny thought there. I don't know about your parking, but individually we're God's temple Corporately, we're God's temple, and we need to constantly be doing those things to build up our faith. Read the Word, pray, fellowship, worship together, serve, share your faith. Do those things that are going to build a strong, a fortified faith. So what if a church repairs its building and ignores a dilapidated faith? That's what had happened here. Verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did... Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and made a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of the Milo, or the tower which stands by Selah. In the end, Joash was assassinated. For Jazakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehazabad, the son of Jomer, his servants struck him. And so he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, during this time, Israel, ruled by Jehoahaz, Israel in the north was ruled by Jehoahaz, and like all the kings of Israel, he followed the sin of Jeroboam. You know, it's kind of interesting. One bad apple does spoil the whole bunch. Let's go to chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, here we are, I knew I was getting to Jehoahaz here, the son of Jehu became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. After two chapters in Judah, the author now shifts to the northern kingdom of Israel. Jehu is succeeded by his son Jehoahaz, who reigns now in Samaria. And this is the beginning of God's promises to Jehu. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, God had promised that he would have a son to reign in his place to the fourth generation. Well, here is the first of those sons, Jehoahaz, king of Israel. But we're told, Jehoahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. 
And you remember the sin of Jeroboam. You know, it's interesting. Jeroboam was the one who set up the golden calves in Dan and in Bethel. He was the one who they worshipped God, supposedly, Jehovah God, but they worshipped him through idols, through these, uh, these sacred images. Jeroboam's sin was the violation of the second commandment, not necessarily the first commandment. Thou shalt not, you know, worship through graven images. And he set up these golden calves, and, and it, was one, it was the t- sin that really Israel could never shake. There were 19 kings who reigned over the northern kingdom of Israel, and all 19 followed in the ways of Jeroboam. It is true one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Jeroboam spoiled the whole bunch for the northern kingdom. Notice what happens. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadid, the son of Haziel, all their days. They were conquered by the Syrians to the north. And so Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Notice this, an unnamed deliverer led Israel in revolt against Syria. For some reason, God didn't see fit to give us the name of this individual. But I am sure that his name was not forgotten in heaven. Here's a quiz. Who can recount the name of the Good Samaritan? Anybody? The name of the Good Samaritan. Well, the reason you can't is because the Scripture doesn't give us his name. He was an unnamed individual. Not everyone who serves the Lord, not everyone who makes a vital contribution to the Lord gets his name mentioned in the credits at the end of the movie. Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is a classic example. Man, this church functions because of the host of unnamed servants who pitch in and do their part. That's the backbone of our church, the unnamed servants. Hey, understand that that not every servant of God, not everyone who makes a vital contribution is going to be known for it. You'll be known in heaven, but not necessarily on earth. It reminds me of the private at the military armory. One day he gets a call from a man who who asks him, he says, please give me a count of the equipment that's on hand. The private says, well, we've got three Jeeps, we've got four tanks, we've got 500 rifles, and we've got a ton of ammunition, and we've got two fancy Cadillacs for the fat generals. There's this long silence over the phone, and, and and then a voice says, private, do you know who I am? No, I'm General Weston. The private says, General Do you know who I am? General Weston says, no. Private replies, see you later, fatty. (laughs) Well, the moral of the story is there are some advantages of being the unnamed servant. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Verse 8, 
Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash his son reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. Now, one of the problems that you encounter when you read 2 Kings, again, is this overlap of names. And that's why you needed that little sheet that gives you the names of the kings. There are two Jehorams on that list. There are two Joashes on that list. There are two Jeroboams on that list. That, that, there's different men with the same name, and that leads to confusion. The Joash in chapters 11 and 12 is the king of Judah, the boy king who was hidden by the priest. This king now in chapter 13 is Joash of Israel, the northern kingdom, the son of Jehoahaz. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did in his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. This Jeroboam was known as Jeroboam II. Here's our second Jeroboam. So this is Jeroboam II. That's what history calls him. He gets named after the northern kingdom's first king, the guy who set up the idols in Dan and in Bethel, and he ends up ruling for 41 years, longest of the kings of Israel. As a matter of fact, history refers to him as one of the more successful kings in the northern kingdom. God was certainly not pleased with him. But before we get to Jeroboam II, an event occurs as a flashback to the reign of Joash. Elijah, Elisha, I'm sorry, contracts a fatal illness. Verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Now we're not given the prophet's age at this point. I noticed one Bible commentary suggested he was 120 years old. But Elisha had been a fixture in Israel for a very long time. He had been a beacon of truth, a beacon of righteousness in a rebellious land. We're told, then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. King Joash pays Elisha a visit. And evidently he expected Elisha to leave the earth as his predecessor Elijah had done in a fiery chariot. That's why he calls out the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. But Elijah doesn't escape death like Elijah. It's interesting, Elisha healed others, but when it came time for God to take him, his illness proved fatal. See, not all of God's servants get healed in this lifetime. Elisha will die, but first God uses him to utter a deathbed prophecy. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. And so he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And so he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. You see, Syria was eastward. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. You know, it was customary to shoot an arrow or to throw a spear 
toward a country that you plan to invade. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Assyrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. All this was assurance that God would fight for Israel. And that he would deliver Israel from the army of Syria. Well, then he said, take the arrows. And so he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Joash hits the ground three times. He stops. And Elisha gets angry with him. You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have destroyed Israel, Syria, I'm sorry. But now you will just strike Syria only three times. It won't be a death blow. You'll still have to deal with her. You see, apparently, Elisha could tell that the king's lack of fervor, his lack of passion, was indicative of his attitude. You know, here was a guy that was willing to fight, but evidently not, not to the full extent that he could. You know, he was willing to fight. He was willing to trust. He was willing to commit, but only to a point. You know people like that? You know people that will strike the ground three times but, and then give up, but really and truly you, the job needed five times or six times. This is our problem on occasion. We strike once or twice at the problem and then we quit. We get sent on the ropes in our lives and then we let it go. Guys, sometimes we need that killer instinct. If Joash had truly been desperate for victory, he would have smiked the arrow until it broke. But he didn't. He, he struck it just a few times and then gave up. You know, some of you may remember Bo Jackson. You know, Bo played baseball for the Kansas City Royals. And it was kind of his trademark. Whenever he would strike out, he would take his bat and he boom, and he'd break it over his knee. You ever see that? Maybe I was dreaming. I know he did it. I saw it. Thank you, Jamie. You know, whenever he struck out, he'd take that wooden Batman and he'd just crack it right over his knee. And I was always impressed with the strength that it took to break a wooden bat like that over your knee. I never took his actions as poor sportsmanship. I took it as determination. To me, it was obvious Bo knows desire. Apparently, that's what Joash lacked. He needed a little fire. He needed a little passion. The king didn't realize that faith has to be persistent. He doesn't just try once and then give up or twice or three times. Hey, faith keeps pounding until the bat breaks. Well, verse 20 says, Then Elisha died and they buried him. And notice the terseness of the statement there. The implication is a simple burial rather than a huge state funeral, you know. You know, when Elisha died, he was not given a hero's burial. It was a no-frills kind of a funeral. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. An amazing thing happens here. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. We need to get out of Dodge. Just stick him over there in Elisha's tomb for the time being, and we'll come back and finish your job later. So they put the man in the tomb of Elisha, and when the man was let down, 
and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and he stood on his feet. Isn't it amazing? Even after Elisha was dead, his bones were still working miracles. Remember, Elisha had asked Elijah for a double portion of the Holy Spirit. I think he got his request. Verse 22. And Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Haziel, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadid, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadid, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and captured the cities of Israel. His three victories fulfilled Elisha's deathbed prophecy. You know, he struck three times. He, he did win three victories, but that was it. Well, chapter 14 shifts again to Judah and King Amaziah, the successor of Joash. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father the king. For the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses in which the Lord commanded saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children nor shall their children be put to death for their fathers but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. And the scriptural reference there was Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 16. Now Amaziah also killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, or in the Dead Sea Basin. And he took Selah by war, some people think Selah was the rock city of Petra, and called its name Jokthil to this day. Now according to 2 Chronicles chapter 25, Amaziah's victories over Edom went to his head. Got the big head. He had some minor success, but it made him feel invincible. And he started looking for bigger fish to fry. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. Now at the time, Israel was this dominant power. Judah was sort of a weakling. Judah was really no match for the northern kingdom of Israel. But it's Amaziah now. He's had these victories over Edom, and now he wants to pick a fight with Israel. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son his wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. Now you get what he's saying. Judah is the thistle. We're talking just a bush. Israel, the northern kingdom, is the cedar tree. And Jehoash warns that Judah is about to be trampled by the northern kingdom, that the 
The cedar tree is about to crush the thistle. Verse 10. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed. Guys, beware of pride. Amaziah thought that just because he won the Pee Wee Championship, he was ready to take on the Atlanta Braves. He miscalculated. Therefore, Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Bashemish, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Bashemish. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. It was a bitter defeat brought on by a man's pride. Verse 15. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. And it was during the reigns of Joash and Jeroboam II that the northern kingdom of Israel did experience a surge of strength and prosperity. It was in essence a final reprieve, sort of the calm before the storm. It was one last period of God's blessing before God's judgment. And it was during this time, by the way, that God sent prophets. Prophets like Hosea. Prophets like Amos to warn Israel of their sin. Jonah ministered to Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. As a matter of fact, his name gets mentioned here in verse 25. This whole flurry of prophetic warning was God's final call to the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 17. While Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Now imagine, you get your driver's license and you get crowned king in the same year. It's a big year. You know, we've talked about a 7-year-old king. And now we're talking about a 16-year-old king. And quite frankly, after having a seven-year-old and after having a 16-year-old, I'm not sure which one I'd want to live under. Think about that for a minute. We're told Azariah, Azariah built Eliath. And he didn't build it into what it is today. You know, Eliath is down on the Red Sea, down on the coast, and it has become an incredible resort area. 
you know, it's the favorite resort area for the Europeans. They all fly down to Israel and they drive down to Eliot and they go to the beach down there. It's beautiful. It's a seaport. It's a tropical resort area. Uh, you know, one of our trips to Israel, I'd love to just take, go a few days earlier and just spin down at Eliot. It's wonderful. Well, Azariah, he built Eliot and he restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Now, this Azariah, Azariah he goes by a more popular name. He's often called Uzziah. And Isaiah 6 makes this statement. Isaiah 6 by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. But this Uzziah apparently was a contemporary of Isaiah the prophet. And he turned out to be a good king. He turned out to be a godly king. As a matter of fact, he reigned over Judah for over half a century. 52 years, Azariah or Uzziah reigned over Judah. We'll study more about him next time. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king of Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. That's a long time. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Again, he followed in the idolatry of his namesake. Well, this Jeroboam II, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah. In other words, from north to south, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Jeroboam II died in 752 B.C. During his reign, Syria was preoccupied with her northern neighbor, the growing Assyrian Empire. And this allowed Israel to prosper for a time. Sadly, though, Israel prospered economically while she was bankrupt spiritually. And it wasn't long before the Assyrians, who conquered Syria to the north, moved down further south and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. and scattered them among the nations. And we will study that next week.